I've wanted to go to Japan since I was a teenager for various reasons. Perhaps it was because of my infant addiction to those first Japanese animations. Jimmy Sparks and Gigantor, his huge radio-controlled robot. Or Marine Boy, able to breathe underwater through the power of Oxygum. What I would have done for a packet of Oxygum. But as a teenager, I became obsessed with what I would now call aesthetics. Not a word I would have used then, of course. Not unless I wanted to get my head kicked in. But Japanese stone gardens, for example, many were constructed in the 16th century, so it's clear they understood abstraction long before it appeared in European and American art. Furthermore, their calligraphy, and I know it's based on Chinese calligraphy, also captivated me. It demonstrated a pleasure in mark-making which, again, European art would discover much later. Then there was the Japanese appreciation of how things age, wabi-sabi, and the tea ceremony. There seemed to be something rhizomatic about the Japanese way of life. No clear top-down belief system, more an entanglement, less like a tree, less hierarchical, and more like roots interconnected. More like a grid than a straight line, spaghetti rather than lasagna, or maybe ramen rather than, say, the British class system. And Zen, of course. This was all tied up with stone gardens. It seems as if the Japanese understood what I couldn't quite articulate, that if we built our belief systems around what we do every day and not look elsewhere for For redemption, we could lead happier lives. The Japanese have an entire belief system built around tea. The British do too, we just don't realise it. Think of the etiquette of tea drinking in British culture, the teapot, the tea leaves, the milk first or last, a nice cuppa as a solution to every problem. The idea that tea is British is laughable. It's one thing the British do well, assume something we enjoy is essentially ours. Yorkshire tea, for example, it doesn't grow on the humid slopes of Pickerston Ridge. Twinings, the British Tea Company, has possibly the oldest logo in the world, first used in 1787. Tea is part of British culture, but it is peripheral compared to its role in Japan. In the tea ceremony, almost every move is choreographed. Where even those polite exchanges between participants are scripted, but at least the tea ceremony is tangible. You get to drink tea, eventually. Shinto, once the state religion of Japan, is more elusive. Shinto is not so much a religion as a set of images and practices, let's say rites or rituals, based on almost nothing at all. Nothing, nothing at all, nothing is central.
to Japanese life, as I'll try and explain. But here I am in Kyoto, the ancient capital. On first arriving in Kyoto, it can appear to be composed of narrow alleys over which cables hang, ugly streets that seem to offer no compromise to aesthetics, but walk along one of those alleys or narrow streets and set back off the road so to make them invisible from either end are bars and cafes and restaurants, hairdressers, boutiques, museums and art galleries. Turn a corner and suddenly there's a temple or a shrine. These are beautiful and beguiling. Some are located in huge gardens, others the size of a telephone box. The Buddhist temples have gates with a roof, the Shinto shrines have simple gates like an arch, and every one of them bright red, vermilion, almost orange. Sometimes temple and shrine are on the same site. Tokyo is a maze, Kyoto a grid. Tokyo was bombed in World War II, Kyoto was not. And some historians credit the US Secretary for War, Henry Stimson, who had been to Kyoto many times for removing the city from the list of US targets. Kyoto's grid system predates that of New York by a long way. It is a city surrounded by mountains and has an odd retro sci-fi tower at the center. So using the tower as a landmark, the city was easy to navigate even at night. In Tokyo, look up and you see the overpass, the monorail, and above, planes taking off, landing. There's always something over your head. In Kyoto, the ancient capital, there's a grid of narrow streets where cables dangle from rooftop to rooftop. Huge eight-lane roads cut through the middle, yet somehow they never feel oppressive or noisy or dirty. In the central reservation of one of the biggest roads, we saw cherry trees frothy with blossom. Yes, we arrived just as the cherry blossom season was starting. Sakura, the Japanese word for cherry blossom, and also the title of a traditional piece of Japanese music that accompanies this podcast. Several times on the way back to our hotel in Kyoto, we took a different route. We walked everywhere. We turn a corner from a narrow urban street and suddenly find ourselves in a huge temple or shrine compound, and rarely did we come across the same shrine twice. I love the Inari shrines, which pay homage to the god of rice, wheat, sake, and agriculture, the god often depicted as a fox. At one of these shrines at Fushimi, perhaps the most famous, there were vermilion gates everywhere, gates that ran up and down a mountain, 10,000 vermilion gates along a route that went on for miles, and everywhere along the path, shrines for Inari as a fox wearing a red bib. There are a pair at each shrine facing each other, one with its mouth open, one with his mouth closed. At other shrines there are lions or warriors either side. Mouth open, mouth closed. Alpha to omega, vowel and consonant. Breathe in, breathe out. Beginning and end. 
the Japanese when visiting an Inari shrine buy replica foxes or tiny model gates or they buy prayers and these objects litter the shrines, even the tiniest ones. At the centre of the Buddhist temples, often huge and more like a Catholic cathedral, is Buddha or in some cases the founder of the temple. At the centre of the Shinto shrine, between the foxes or the lions, under the gong or the lantern or the bell, in the centre of it all, there is nothing, a hole, an emptiness. Tokyo and Kyoto have, at their centre, an imperial palace. When we decided to walk to the Imperial Palace grounds in Kyoto, we looked at a map and could not believe the size of the gardens. What wonders will we behold? The palace itself was closed, its walls blank, and the walls went on and on into the distance. The gardens, well, there was a small green park, but the vast majority of the place was white gravel. It's no exaggeration to suggest the area of travel is so huge a large civil airliner could land there. When we reached the far side looking back, the palace was barely visible. So if Kyoto has a centre, the centre is empty, a hole like the shrines. Why? What does it mean? Is there a meaning? Why do we need meaning? <laughs> Kisaten. The Kisaten is very particular to Japan. It's a cafe that serves tea, coffee and toast, maybe an egg. That's it. We queued for one beautiful Kisaten in Kyoto next to a canal lined with cherry trees. Inside we were perplexed to find half the tables unoccupied, yet outside the queue grew longer. Was this because Japanese cities are so crowded that cafes are not just offering tea, coffee and toast, but space? One cafe on our route stated it explicitly, with huge letters fixed across the window. They read, in English, coffee and space. I remember buying a small vase in a beautiful shop. It cost less than £10, but the assistant wrapped it in tissue paper, then placed it in a box, which she then gift-wrapped and placed in a small paper carrier bag. Again, what was at the centre seemed less important than the surroundings. An onion, layer upon layer. And when I saw how Japanese people were, how they conformed, how pleasant and apparently contented with themselves, I wondered, had the influence of Buddhism squashed their egos? Was the fact that this was a country that depended on rice rather than wheat and that rice demands intensive cooperative labour? Are they, as Professor Alan McFarlane writes in his brilliant book, Japan Through the Looking Glass, are they, at the centre of their beings, empty? Or could it be that they have a sense of themselves as part of something else, rather than each of them separate, unique? As McFarlane points out, the Japanese for human being is composed of two Chinese characters, the first human, the second between. Perhaps they see themselves more as existing within a network of relationships, family, work, society, than as an individual. There's no monotheistic religion in Japan. There is no sense of soul. A Japanese proverb, hammer down the protruding nail, emphasizes the pressure on conformity. In Tokyo and Kyoto, we saw people sitting alone, eating and drinking. 
There were restaurants which had booths for individuals to be alone, separated from others. The Anglo-Saxon world, Britain, America, we want to be individuals. We want to express ourselves. We want, we are told, freedom, choice, self-actualization. This doesn't seem to be how it is in Japan. There's less a sense of individuality, yet sometimes the individual is alone. We Anglo-Saxons are individuals, yet we like a crowd, a mob, a gang, an echo chamber. The Japanese are happier not to appear different, yet they're somehow lonely. I can't explain this, and somehow Japan avoids all explanation. It is, I think, a particularly Anglo-Saxon desire to explain, to reduce, to simplify, just as I'm doing now. They're less individualistic. If explanations are trees, the Japanese dwell in the roots, where one root meets another, where things intertwine. In English, we want to get to the heart of the matter, find something's essence, get to the bottom of things. We're always looking for the centre. Compare sushi to a traditional British meal. Sushi has no centre. Who wants a Sunday roast without meat? The Japanese meal has no centre. The centre of the city is space. There is nothing at the centre of a Shinto shrine. And there is no concept of the soul. I came to see the Buddhist temple as an enterprise, like the church in the UK, riddled with hypocrisy. I visited a huge Buddhist temple complex in Kyoto, Higashi Hongaji, which contains a mausoleum containing the ashes of Shin Buddhist founder Shinran. At the centre of the founder's hall, one of the largest wooden structures in the world, a vast space decorated with golden peacocks, gold leaf, is a statue of Shinran, a statue we are supposed to believe he carved himself. This huge space was like a European cathedral, ostentatious, elaborate, ridiculous. Don't Buddhists forswear materialism? Compare this to the many Shinto shrines, which have nothing, no one at the centre, and are rarely so gaudy. Shinto has no god, no holy text, no concept of good or evil. We watched as the Japanese came to pray. They clap their hands, they throw money in a grill, they clap their hands again, or they ring a bell or a gong. At some temples and shrines, there are queues winding around the block. But who are they praying to? Perhaps that isn't the question. Maybe the question is this, who are they praying with? I'd booked our trip for early March because visiting in the cherry blossom season, which is usually in April, is more expensive and much busier. But when we got to Kyoto, the cherry blossom had exploded and there were so many people everywhere, not just in the parks or in the shrines and the temples, but everywhere. And yet they were all so quiet, so quiet. If there was a loud voice in the street, on the subway, invariably, it was an American. Sorry, America. And the Japanese have to be quiet and respectful of each other and polite because there are so many people. In the 18th century, Japan was the most urbanized country in the world. On a 320-mile bullet train ride between Tokyo and Kyoto, we rarely left an urban space. There were mountains, and most memorably, Mount Fuji. But the mountains are inhospitable. But the coastal strip is continually built up. The trains in Japan arrived and left to the second. I watched the overhead platform clock and checked. When we left Heathrow, there was one poor woman trying to solve 50 travellers' problems. 
a Haneda airport in Tokyo, there were hundreds of people there to help. At any construction site or roadworks, no matter how small, in fact there was one hole in the road the size of a sofa with bollards around it, but at every one of these sites there was at least one uniformed marshal, often many more, with an illuminated red wand like a truncheon to ensure you didn't fall into the hole or bunk into scaffolding. I began thanking every one of them with a little bow, and everyone bowed back. I love those little bows. Building sites had huge monitors which displayed noise levels. In forests, we were warned to beware of monkeys and boars. At the sea, we were warned of jellyfish and manta rays. And the tourist maps on the roadside they had one significant difference to similar maps in the UK. Every map was oriented to where we stood. At first this was confusing. A map on one side of the road was completely different from a map on the other. Maps rotated to wherever you stood. Does this suggest the Japanese put the person first? There is no God looking down. No one sees things from the point of view of eternity. There's just us. Does travel broaden the mind or does it confirm what we already believe? When I reflect on how the Japanese must view the UK, I think this. We're messy, noisy, dirty, loud, chaotic. We don't obey rules. I came up with this theory. The Japanese are all or nothing. All or Here are nothing. some examples. The streets are ugly. The parks and temples beautiful. There is nothing between. There is no obesity, yet there is sumo. On the TV, every day, I became a fan. All or nothing. There are few lawyers, almost no litigation. Most offences are treated with amazing conciliation. But commit a serious crime and the penal system is merciless. Prisons have no comforts, no TVs, no privileges. And there is capital punishment. They still hang people. The Japanese are either crossing the road or they are standing on the pavement. Only a handful of Japanese disobey the signals. They wait patiently when the roads are clear for miles in every direction. You walk or you wait, all or nothing. All or nothing. And cherry blossom. I thought we would see them in a few special places, a park, an avenue and so on. But the cherry blossom trees are everywhere. And there are few other trees in town, particularly along riverbanks. The trees were exclusively cherry blossom. And when the blossom was out, the Japanese went crazy. Most trees would have someone underneath, often in traditional costume, taking a photograph. But the blossom lasts only a few weeks. Outside our hotel, it came and went while we were there. And then there is no blossom anywhere. It's gone. All, All or nothing. nothing. All blossom or no blossom. And as the blossom falls, out come the brooms. Brooms like witches' brooms made of sticks. And no sooner has the blossom fallen than it is swept away. All or nothing. And the broom features in shrines, several either side, arranged symmetrically. The Japanese may have a low tolerance of dirt, but these brooms are for sweeping away danger to ward off evil spirits. Like Hinduism, Shintoism is a form of nature worship. There are spirits in everything, everywhere. There's a sense of reverence here, but not so much of nature, as it hardly exists in all these Japanese cities, but of life itself, of being, and of others. I won't attempt to pin anything down, nor for the moment at least come to any conclusions, for I know that as soon as I do, Japan will have changed, and pinning things down is something I've learnt to try and avoid. 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 Japan avoids. There is a void, a space, and the Japanese are avoidant. All or nothing. There is a sense they repress their anger. Their courtesy is extreme. But Japan is changing, and I don't think it's a change for the better. 
I felt as if we were seeing it before it becomes like everywhere else. But then again, perhaps we could change too and become more like Japan, more courteous, more civil, less individualistic, more appreciative of the ordinary. Maybe stop the relentless chase for answers. (laughs) 